Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jewish Truth Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. Hello, this is Lenny Goldberg, and thank you for joining me on The Jewish Truth Bomb. This week, the U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, he paid a visit to Israel, and Blinken made the usual rounds, met with Netanyahu, and Blinken said all kinds of things that dominated the Israeli headlines. Criticized, of course, the Israel settlement activity in Judea and Samaria. It's an obstacle to peace. We've heard that before. He urged all sides to take urgent steps to restore the calm. After all, it's been a volatile week. A lot of Jews and Arabs have been killed. A lot of casualties. Of course, he compares the Jewish victims who were murdered to the terrorists who were killed or the Arabs in Janine who were killed by the IDF. It's all the same thing. He spoke of the, and I quote, the shrinking horizon of hope for the Palestinians. And of course, he affirmed Washington's backing of a two-state solution for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And so it's like cut and paste, these secretaries of state with the same slogans, the same talking points. And what did you expect from the Biden administration? What kind of secretary of state did you expect? Mike Pompeo. Of course, they're going to bring a secretary of state who's going to try to put the screws to Israel. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the whole Israeli-American relationship because people seem to think that the U.S. and Israel, they've been allies forever. You hear the leaders of both Israel and the U.S., they speak so fondly of the unbreakable alliance between the two countries. And they speak of the deep ties between Israel and the United States. Well, if you go back to the establishment of the state, it wasn't like that. In 1948, Israel was seen by the U.S. as a burden upon America. Jews may love the U.S. president at that time, Harry Truman, but the fact is he placed an embargo on all arms coming into Israel during those critical times. The fledgling Jewish state was fighting for survival and President Truman placed an arms embargo. He upheld the State Department's decisions there. The only country supplying Israel with weapons in the 48 war, which was the war of independence, the war of survival, you won't believe it but it was the Stalin-backed country of Czechoslovakia. Yeah, that great Zionist, Joseph Stalin. The U.S. didn't give us a bullet. The only arms coming in from the U.S. were those that were smuggled in from the docks of the Brooklyn Navy Yard. There were good Jews in those days packing crates for Palestine. That's the only weapons that came in from America. And in the 1950s and 60s, America didn't give us anything. It was France that snob country who is no friend of Israel today, they were the only major power willing to arm Israel. And I hate to say this, but you have to give credit to Shimon Peres for that. But they sold massive quantities of high quality arms to Israel. And it was the French aircrafts that became the backbone of the Israeli Air Force with the Mirage fighter planes. And in 67, on the eve of the Six Day War, it wasn't American fighter planes, it was French Mirages that launched that preemptive strike, which wiped out the Egyptian Air Force but you know what? Right after that war, France, they broke off relations with Israel. And it was only a couple of years after that, that the U.S. became a supplier to Israel. Not because they suddenly loved Israel or it was a matter of goodwill. But after the Six-Day War, Israel had shown its prowess and they emerged as an effective, reliable ally. When they beat up on the Arabs in that Six-Day War, they were beating up on Russian equipment. So America started to back Israel because it was good for them. And Walter Russell Mead said it best. He said, Israel didn't grow strong because it has an American alliance. It acquired an American alliance because it had grown strong. But the point is, there wasn't always this special relationship between Israel and the United States. 
And when it happened, it happened because there was an interest for both countries. Because the United States knows that, that the military equipment that Israel gets from the U.S., that serves as a laboratory for their arms. It's a place for them to be battle-tested. When Israel flies the U.S.-manufactured F-16 and F-35, and they point out its flaws and where it can be upgraded, how much money does that save the United States R&D? Billions of dollars. Israel also shares with the United States military its tactics against terror, and U.S. Special Operation Units are trained by the IDF. And General George Keegan, who's head of the U.S. Air Force Intelligence, he said that the USA would have to establish five CIAs in order to gather the intelligence provided by Israel. Now, the annual budget of one CIA is $15 billion. So, of course, America supports Israel because it's good for them. Israel is like a huge aircraft carrier supporting American foreign policy goals in a tough neighborhood. And America has no other allies they can turn to in this area. So we have to stop, you know, kissing, you know what, and worrying about blokes like Anthony Blinken or whatever other clown waltzes in from Washington. And just know that when the U.S. supplies Israel with military aid, they use that as a pressure tactic during negotiations. This has happened several times where the supply of weapons would be tied to the condition of Israel making concessions. What's worse is that Israel has to purchase exclusively from the United States. They can't purchase from anybody else. That's part of the conditions of getting U.S. aid. Israel even had to close its own factories because they were forced to. For example, Israel manufactured a great Jeep called the Sufa. It was a quality Jeep, very successful, and Israel had to close down the factory because Israel is only allowed to buy American manufactured Jeeps. That's part of the conditions of receiving American aid. And thousands of jobs were lost. And if you know anything about the Levy Project, the, that fighter plane that could have been the greatest fighter plane ever manufactured, that's a long story. We'll talk about it one day. But that was sabotaged because it would have competed with the American F-16s and their import market. So we're forcing ourselves to be dependent on America. And though in the short term, foreign aid from the U.S. might be beneficial, there's a catch to it. It prevents us from being independent and exploring other suppliers. Now, I'm no expert on Israeli-U.S. foreign policy and the intricacies of the military equipment that's given to Israel and all that. But I listen to people who are. Yoram Ettinger, this man is an expert in U.S. relations, and he's been a consultant to Israeli and U.S. legislators for decades. Check out Yoram Ettinger, and he'll tell you what I'm saying right here. He's got all the facts, and he's against this dependency on American aid. And so is General Amir Avivi, who was a brigadier general. He's the chairman and founder of a group called Bitchonistim. This guy was the commander of Battalion 605 and the commander of the School of Combat Engineering. This guy is qualified to know what's going on. Check out Amir Avivi and Yoram Ettinger. We don't hear those voices enough, but they've been saying for years how this dependence on USAID ends up being harmful to Israel. And they can explain to you in a hundred ways how USAID is an investment. It's not charity to Israel. It's an investment for them. Nobody is saying that we should tell America, you know, go jump in the lake. We don't want your aid. What we're saying is that the approach has to be like doing business. You help me, I help you. And not like we're some beggar, you know, in the doorway. So don't be so sure that Israel needs America that much. That's what you've been conditioned to think. Listen to other views. It's like with COVID and the vaccine. 
You don't necessarily trust the mainstream media on those issues. You want to seek out other opinions. What do other scientists and doctors say? Well, it's the same thing here. Be enlightened and check out people like Yoram Mettinger and Amira Vivi. Listen or read what they have to say about the benefits of this American aid and get a fresh understanding of the whole relationship between Israel and the United States. Because most of us have the same stale perceptions. And because of these old stale perceptions, out of habit, Jews say, we can't do without America. Even religious Jews say it. Where's the faith? Can't we see how God orchestrates events? How can we not see it? That in the 1948 war, it was Stalin giving us weapons. And then after that, it was the French. And then only after that, it was the USA. God has lots of shlichim. He's got lots of emissaries at his disposal. Now it happens to be America. That could also change. Who says we can't get from China one day? It's not written in Holy Scripture that America and Israel have to be allies. I guess if you're a Jew sitting in America, you'd like it to be that way. It'll make you more comfortable. But it's not written anywhere and it could change. Just like the alliance with France wore off, so too could the alliance with America. And the fact that we look to America as our master, well, that's exactly the lesson that we read in this past Parsha, Parsha B'Shalach, where we had the famous parting of the sea. We see in the verses that before the sea split and the Egyptians are chasing down the Jewish people, we have all these verses where the Jews are crying out and they really start to kvetch. Moses, why'd you take us out of Egypt in the first place? There weren't enough graves in Egypt that you had to bring us out here to die in the desert? Sounds like typical Jewish humor. And we see them in total panic mode, fetching to Moshe Rabbeinu. And the great commentator, the Ibn Ezra, he says the following. You have to ask, how can a camp of 600,000 men fear their pursuers? There's 600,000 men, able-bodied men. Why are they so afraid? Why didn't they man up? He continues, why should they not fight for their lives and the lives of the children? So the Ibn Ezra is asking, why don't they even think about fighting the Egyptians? How many Egyptians are left anyway? It says they took 600 rechiv bachor. They took 600 chariots. So how many Egyptians are there? 600, maybe two for each chariot. And there are 600,000 Jews. That's 100 to 1 in our favor. All they had to do was turn around and fight them. And they got them outnumbered 100 to 1. It doesn't even enter their minds to maybe fight against these Egyptians? So Ibn Ezra gives the answer. And he says, the answer is that the Egyptians were Israel's masters. The generation leaving Egypt learned from childhood to bear the Egyptian yoke. And they possessed a base spirit. The Ibn Ezra calls it a nefesh shvelah, a lowly soul, a base spirit. The Jews in Egypt had a nefesh shvelah. They were so used to being hit by the Egyptians. They were so used to the Egyptians being their masters. Yes, master. Yes, master. They just psychologically weren't able to raise their hand against what was once their masters. So they didn't think of fighting them. All they did was cry. They had a slave mentality, a ruach shvela, a low spirit. And then the Ibn Ezra makes a tremendous chidush. He says like this, And Hashem arranged it that all the males who had left Egypt, they would die out. Why would they die out in the desert? Because they didn't have the strength to fight the Canaanites. They weren't capable of going into Israel and fighting the seven Canaanite nations. And he concludes, they died out until another generation arose, the generation of the desert, who never knew the exile. And they possessed a nefesh kvoah, an exalted spirit. So I say this is a great chidush because we usually say that that generation was wiped out because of the sin of the spies, which happened much later. That's what it says explicitly, because of the sin of the spies, you're going to die here in the desert. 
But already here is the sin of the spies. Ibn Ezra is telling us here, psychologically, that generation that left Egypt, they just didn't have the makeup to enter Israel and fight the Canaanites because all they had gone through. It just wasn't meant to be that that generation was going to be the ones who would enter the land of Israel. They weren't made of the right stuff. You had to wait for a new generation, a generation with a nefesh kvoah, with an exalted spirit. That's the Dora Midbar. That was the generation of the desert. So that's the thing. We have to shake off this nefesh shvela, this slave mentality. We're in the exile for 2,000 years, always worrying, what are they going to say? What are they going to do? We are still slaves in our nefesh. We haven't adapted. We have this nefesh shvela, always looking towards our master. I raise my eyes to the heavens, and from Washington will come my salvation. That's how we think, out of habit. It doesn't matter that America's crumbling in front of our eyes. We're just in the habit of them being our big daddy. Well, they're becoming a joke. And we got to think of alternatives and not be dependent just on them. I want to talk about another important lesson that we can learn from the splitting of the sea episode. And it touches upon what we learned last week, the concept of collective punishment in Judaism. So let's go back to the verse we mentioned earlier, where it says that Pharaoh, he took 600 rechev bachor. He took 600 chosen chariots. With that, he went out to chase the Jewish people. And the Midrash Tanchuma asks, where do you get the horses from for these chariots? Where they come from? Whose were they? I mean, how much cattle and horses were left over? Because we already saw all of the cattle was wiped out in the plagues. If you say there were Paro's cattle, we have a verse where it says, that Hashem's hand was against Paro's cattle as well. And if you say the horses they were using to chase the Jews down, they belong to the children of Israel. But we know that Moshe Rabbeinu told Paro, Moshe told Paro, we're going to take our cattle with us. So the question is, where do these horses come from? Where did the Egyptians get these horses to chase down the Jewish people at the Red Sea? And they give the answer, Remember the plague of Barad, the plague of hail? There it said kind of quietly that all the Egyptians who feared the Lord, they put their cattle under the shelter. At that point, they already feared Hashem. So before the hail came, they were given a chance to bring their cattle inside. And those were the horses that were used to chase down the Jewish people at the Red Sea. And the Midrash concludes, Lomadu, we learn from this, who were God-fearing, they became a stumbling block for Israel. Even the good ones, the God-fearing ones. In the end, it was their horses that were being used by Pharaoh and the Egyptians to chase Jewish people down in the desert and kill them. So we see that even the good ones are a problem. Because again, war, it's a collective enterprise. It has nothing to do with individuals. You don't look at this individual and say, he's a good one, he's a bad one. The Midrash continues that way. It says, Even the best of them you have to kill. And the best of the snakes, you got to squash their heads. Why do we compare it to what you do with a snake? Because if there's a snake, you don't ask if it's poisonous or not poisonous. You just crush his head. Same thing when you're in a war with somebody else and we're in a war with the Arabs. You don't ask if it's a good one or a bad one. You have to crush his head. There's no time to ask questions. There's no time to pick out the nice ones. The nice ones in Egypt, the ones who feared the Lord, they became an obstacle to the Jewish people. They were weaponized against the Jewish people. And so we glean our concepts from the Torah, 
People talk about Jewish ethics. They would know a Jewish ethic if they stumbled over one. These are Jewish ethics. The Midrash Tanchuma. Okay, moving on now to something totally different. I want to bring a headline from the Jerusalem Post this past Thursday. It says like this. Will top U.S. Jews boycott far-right coalition parties? And the article goes on to explain how the President's Conference and people like Malcolm Honline, all these figures from the Jewish establishment, they're thinking of boycotting the extremist elements in the government coalition, you know, like Ben Gvir and Smotrich. That's what they want to do. You know, Jewish establishment organizations like the President's Conference, they were established in order to unify worldwide Jewry in all its diversity, in Orthodox and the Reform, the secular, whatever, unaffiliated. The very fact that the President's Conference is not inviting the Orthodox, what they call extreme Knesset members, because they disagree with their policies, that goes against what the President's Conference was supposed to be about. You know, if you go back to the 70s, when the head of the President's Conference and the Reform Movement was Alexander Schindler, he was as left and liberal as you can get. But you know, when Menachem Begin won the elections in Israel in 1977, total upheaval in Israeli society. That was a ma'apach. If you think what's going on now with this right-wing government is some kind of revolutionary change, that's nothing compared to what happened when Menachem Begin, after sitting in the opposition for 27 years, he became the prime minister. That sent shockwaves throughout the world because he was considered this terrorist who has now come to power. Never mind that Begin disappointed us, but the world was stunned. This was a mahapach. It was a revolutionary change because this crazy terrorist, Menachem Begin, is now the prime minister of Israel. So all the noise that's going on about this new government, which is supposed to be ultra right wing, it's nothing compared to when Begin got elected. Well, you know, Alexander Schindler, as much as he opposed Begin's policies, he embraced Begin. He didn't ban him. He understood that these are the Israelis' elected leaders. Who is he to ban Begin? So Alexander Schindler, when he was heading the President's Conference, he had more integrity than, than all these Jewish establishment leaders today who can't stop criticizing Israel and its new government. They want Israel to commit suicide. These American establishment Jews, they'll condemn Israel for any policy of strength against the Arabs who seek to destroy it. They'll condemn Israel for any judicial change. They're always going to try to force them to make mad concessions to the Arabs. And these establishment organizations, they don't necessarily represent the average American Jew. The average giver to the UJA and the President's Conference is a passive, total non-activist Jew. So these established Jewish groups who are criticizing this government, the major organizations, they're paper groups, nothing more. Their membership lists are fraudulent. Most of their members haven't paid their dues in years. And the power brokers in these federations and the Jewish organizations, they're wealthy liberals. And all they really care about underneath is the anti-Semitism that could be caused if Israel starts to do the right thing. That's what's bothering them. It's not a good look for them when Ben Gvir and Smotrich are ministers in the government. And so the whole American Jewish community, they're sitting on a volcano of an economic crisis that's moving towards catastrophic explosion. And it's going to explode and it will be fueled by a lot of anti-Semitism towards the Jew. You already have unparalleled Jew hatred from all sides. So these major organizations who are criticizing this government, they should stop criticizing and start making their Aliyah plans before things get too hot and that volcano erupts. And it should be the other way around. Israeli leaders shouldn't be afraid to criticize the American leaders and expose them for what they are. I mean, there's a bankrupt history of Jewish organizations who did nothing during the Holocaust. These organizations who encouraged assimilation and intermarriage and the melting pot, 
That's their record. And the reason they didn't do enough for Jews during the Holocaust, because they were worried that if they did, if they did shake the world, it would cause anti-Semitism in America. That's why they really didn't go all out like they did later on for civil rights in the 60s for blacks and sitting in a bus. They were willing to get killed for that. But for the Holocaust, they approached Roosevelt. He said no. And they didn't do much as six million died because Roosevelt scared them that if he allocated American resources to bomb the railroads or stop the Holocaust, then people would be saying American soldiers are dying because of the Jews and the American Jews couldn't handle that. That would bring anti-Semitism upon them. So that's what's going on now. They're worried about a right-wing extreme government like this doing the right thing and getting bad press and that'll make things uncomfortable for them. That's where they're coming from. And finally, I want to talk about Tu B'Shvat. Today was the 15th of Shvat, and Jews all over Israel, we celebrate the holiday of Tu B'Shvat because it marks the season in which the earliest blooming trees in the land of Israel, they emerge from their winter sleep and they begin a new fruit-bearing cycle. Now, the holiday of Tu B'Shvat, it kind of morphosized into a Zionist kind of holiday because when the Jews of Europe began to establish their agricultural settlements in what was Palestine in the late 19th century, well, they realized they were fulfilling the dream of almost 2,000 years before them. And because they were reclaiming the land and reviving Jewish life on it, they transformed Tu B'Shvat to a really big holiday. And the fact is, it says in Sanhedrin 98 that the first sign of the rebirth of the land of Israel, that the land of Israel will start to be revived and will start to bear fruits. I'm going to read here from the Talmud. Rab Abba said, there is no more obvious sign of redemption than this. And they bring a verse in Ezekiel chapter 36. O mountains of Israel, shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel. And Rashi says on that, when the land of Israel offers a high yield of produce, then it's the end of the exile. There is no sign more obvious than that. You hear what he said? That when the land of Israel gives off its produce, that is the greatest sign that the exile is over. That is the flowering of the land is the greatest and surest sign that the redemption is underway. So Tu B'Shvat, it comes to remind us that the land of Israel is bearing fruit after 2,000 years of being barren. And that's the clearest sign, according to the Talmud, that the redemption is underway. And just continuing in this Gomorrah in Sanhedrin 98, they ask the following question. Why is it that when we pray Ashmon Asrei prayer, you have the bracha, brachat Hashanim, you pray for Parnassah, for produce in the land. And after that, you have the bracha where you pray for Kibbutz Galayot, you pray for the ingathering of the exiles. After the bracha, brachat What's the kesher? What does one have to do with the other? So they teach us when the land of Israel shoots off its fruits and its branches yield fruit, then the Jews will come from all over the world and they'll gather in Israel. There'll be a kibbutz galiot. And that's why there's that sequence that the blessing of the ingathering of the exiles follows the blessing of sustenance, brachat those are two early components of the redemption. So next time you daven Shmon Asrei, pay attention to that. So we see this being fulfilled in our days. The land is blossoming and Jews are coming. You know, and this is really important because I hear all the time, especially from yeshiva guys from abroad, they come to Tapuach for a visit, they come to the Shamron. They've come to Israel for a year to learn from the yeshivas in Lakewood or whatever. And when they talk about Israel, they say, it's Gullis. They say, we're in Gullis here. Call this the exile. Well, first of all, how can we be in the Gullis if we're in the land of Israel? Exile and Israel are geographical locations. So you can't be in the Gullis, in the Galut, if you're in Israel. We might be in Israel with a lousy government and media and court system. That's true. 
we might have an exile mentality. We certainly do. I just spoke about it. But that doesn't mean we're physically in the exile. We might have wicked people in power sometimes in the land of Israel. But that doesn't mean we're in the exile. Just like in the days of the kings, you had really bad kings. You had Ahab and Menashe and Yeravam and Benavat. But nobody says we're in Gullus. We're in the exile. We're in Israel with really bad kings. So instead of going by the gut and emotion and saying, ah, oh, this can't be the redemption, look at it. Hey, forget about all that. It says in the Gomorrah, there's two signs. One, the land gives off its fruits, and that hadn't happened in 2,000 years. And second, there's a kibbutz galiyot, an ingathering of the exiles. And these are two things that are happening, whether you like it or not. And you got to be blind not to see that. Now, maybe it's not the kind of ingathering of the exiles you want to see. It's not Jews with their strimals and black coats and their earlocks. But who said the kibbutz galiyot process, the ingathering of the exiles process, who says it has to be in the way you pictured it? But you can't deny when you come to Israel, you see black Jews and brown Jews and white Jews and Sephardi Jews and Peruvian Jews and Ethiopians. There's a kibbutz galiyot going on, whether you want to admit it or not. So this is important because a lot of us are bitter on what's going on in the country. And we say, how could this be God's hand? How could this be the beginning of the redemption? I don't see it. Well, Tubishvat should remind us that something is happening. So sometimes you just have to put your emotions on the side and just look objectively what the Talmud says. The land gives off fruits and there's an ingathering of the exiles. That's just the reality. Forget about everything else. So one walk through Machane Yehuda should show us that something is happening. And for those who don't see it, I can only quote Bob Dylan when he says, something is happening, but you don't know what it is. Okay, that's it for me. If you want to hear more of me, you can listen to Lenny Goldberg's Bible Classes. It's a podcast on Anchor and Spotify. Lenny Goldberg's Bible Classes for a true and authentic study of the Bible with Jewish sources. Learn Bible the proper way and see what it was like to be a Jew in the land of Israel before the exile when we were a normal people. And if you want to send me an email, a question, a comment, it's LennyGoldberg40 at gmail.com. LennyGoldberg40 at gmail.com. Let me know if you have any questions or comments. And until next week, when we meet again. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. If you're hearing this message, everyone else can too. Advertise with Israel News Talk Radio and get your message out to people. We'll build a personalized package for you. Contact advertising at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, this is Jake in Anchorage, Alaska, and I love listening to all the super interesting interviews and up-to-date information on what's happening in Israel. Hello, this is Anna King, originally from London, now living in Israel. And what can I say? Israel News Talk Radio is my cup of tea. My name is Bhaskar. I'm from India, and I love listening because you get to know the truth and wonderful voices from this lovely country. Mom! Okay, wait a minute. Hi, this is Chava Dots, and I'm calling for the rolling hills of Malaya Dumim, just north of Jerusalem. I always listen to Israel News Talk Radio to get all the latest news and commentary and to keep me up to date every day. 
This is Sarah Duff from Malayadumim, and I'm 12. I wish Israel News Talk Radio was boring so my mom wouldn't listen to it all the time. Mom! You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.